Man, I didn't get around to say hello to every single person. I didn't have enough time. I'm too much of a social butterfly. Yeah, I didn't say hey to you, Brett. All right, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Romans chapter 12. We continue working our way through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. Many of you uh, probably are familiar with the uh, artist Rich Mullins, famous, famous Christian singer-songwriter who tragically died when he was, I don't know how old he was, but he wrote a lot of songs you probably know, El Shaddai, Ryan, what are some other ones? I can't think of them. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> he wrote a lot of songs y'all know. What? Awesome God. That's the yeah, here we go. Here we go. Step by step. See? A lot of songs. A lot of these old songs. But at one of his concerts he was having, you know, he's singing all these songs, all these worship songs people love. This woman comes up to him afterward and, uh, and, and gets a chance to talk to him. And, and she said, Rich, I've never worshipped like that in my life. I was so close to God. It was so exciting. You know, it was so meaningful to her. I am so worshipful and so close to God. And Rich, if you know much about Rich, this is very in character for him. He looked at her and he said, that wasn't worship. That was just emotion. (laughs) You know, just deflated her, right? Uh, He said, that's just emotion. Uh, He said, worship uh, worship is taking care of widows and orphans. Worship is helping somebody who's pulled their car over on the side of the street with a flat tire and helping them out. Worship is serving your neighbor and caring and doing the things God wants you to do in your life. Uh, he's like, what you had was emotion. That's fine, but that's not worship. And, you know, I used to think, you know, when I was in youth group leading music and stuff, that the number of hands that would go in the air would determine how good the worship was. Right? Or, or how loud people sang would determine how good the worship was. And, the, you know, the louder and the more hands, the better. But that's not the case. Uh, what we find is that worship really actually isn't even primarily about singing. Really, worship is a whole life turned and lived for God. Today in Romans, we're really hitting a turning point in the book of Romans. Romans is really divided into two main sections. The first 11 chapters uh, are the first section really answering the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Uh, And the last five chapters are really answering the question, okay, if that's the gospel, what do I do now? What's next? How do I live in response to that? How do we we live? What should we do? What does it mean to, to look like and follow Jesus? In light of this good news, the news that, remember, under, we were under the wrath of God, chapters 1 through 3, but, and, and even though we're Gentiles, we can, by faith, have unfettered access to God as sons, be completely forgiven by faith alone, and we are now right with God. So now that that is answered through the first 11 chapters, what do we do now? What does it look like to follow Jesus? This morning, we're going to look at really four steps of following Jesus. We're going to look at the motivation to follow him, the aim of following him, the means of following him, and the result. So, without further ado, Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at two verses today. Verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12. Paul writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pens these words. I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. The two sections of Romans, 1 through 11 and then the rest, are really divided by a single word. In the beginning of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore is this word that really is a hinge dividing these two, cha- these two sections of this letter. Um, but there's another, there's another way in which they are divided. The first 11 chapters are full of what uh, are called indicatives, and the last five chapters are full of what's called imperatives. Now, this is a normal pattern in the New Testament that indicatives always come first, imperatives always come second. Now, some of y'all are like me, and you failed grammar, and you have no idea what I'm talking about. So, indicatives are a grammatical term which refers to things being certain, being actual, the indicative is grammar that is communicating who we are, what is true. And imperatives are communicating what we do. They are commands. And in Greek, you can actually tell words. You don't just have to look at the context. You can actually tell which words are which by how they end. And so the New Testament has a particular order that pretty much always follows. It's indicative first and then imperative, and that's important. It's always who we are, what is true first, then what is commanded. Next. So in the New Testament, you'll read things like, uh, uh, since you have been raised up with Christ, indicative, seek the things that are above, imperative. Here's something that's true of you, then something to do, right? So that order is really prominent and really important. And the first 11 chapters of Romans are the indicative. Here's what's true of you. And now he's switching to give us commands, switching to give us this imperative. Because of the gospel, now what? Now do we do? Because of all I've taught you, now how do we live in light of that? This is really important because it shows us the motivation by which we follow Jesus. It's really imp- the grammar of this is actually really important because it shows us the motivation for why it is and we are following Jesus. Like, why do we follow him? Do we follow Jesus in order to win his approval? Do we follow Jesus in order to win his affection? Do we follow Jesus in order to win his love or earn his love or get rewards from him? To earn our place at his side? Do we give our lives in service to Jesus in hopes that it will be enough to balance the scales of justice and make up for our wrong past action? Absolutely not. And that is why this therefore is so important. He says, therefore, by the mercies of God, right? I've spent 11 chapters talking about the mercy of God. So therefore, by these mercies, I've just exhausted and talked about. And here's the first command I'm going to give you. You see, religion says, I obey God, therefore I'm accepted by God. But Christianity says, the gospel says, I'm accepted by God, fully and completely in Christ, therefore I obey. And those are two fundamentally different things. You see, understanding the reason we follow Jesus, our motivation is not to get him to love us. Our motivation is because he's already fully and completely loved us and saved us. First point, if you were taking your notes, is the motivation for following Jesus is in response to mercy. 
The motivation is responding to mercy. If you follow Jesus because you feel like you have to, or if you follow Jesus because you feel guilted into doing it or pressured into doing it, or if you follow Jesus because you think in doing so it's going to make God love you or something like that, one of three things will happen to you. Either one, you will burn out and you will give up following him because it will be too exhausting. Or you will grow incredibly arrogant because you will think, man, God should be happy that I've given my life to him and look at me and look at all that I've done for God and how I'm living my life. Look at me, how great I am. You'll grow arrogant. Or you will grow incredibly insecure because you will see how little you measure up to God and how nothing you do ever makes you feel good enough or worthy enough. And so you'll live in great shame and insecurity. So you'll either burn out, be arrogant or insecure if you're following Jesus from the motivation of, i got to get him to love me, I've got to get on his side or something like that. But if you follow Jesus knowing that you are fully secured as his child, fully secured in his family, that all your mistakes, past, present, and future have been wiped clean, and that your worth is bound up in your adoption into his family as sons and daughters and not your ability, then, then you're not going to burn out or get, grow insecure or arrogant. Then you'll be able to run, and your whole life will be able to run after Jesus. You'll be able to sacrifice hard things. You'll be able to give and be incredibly generous. You will be able to fail and get back up again and fail and get back up again. You'll be humble but confident because you know your worth and identity and value is in what he's done for you and not what you've done to earn him. You see, religious moralism, this idea that I've got to be good enough, simply leads to a slavery that will suck the life out of you. And you will never measure up. But the gospel, this free grace, leads to a life to the fullest. And it becomes the fuel that keeps you going. Because when what God has done for you in Christ is your motivation, when the gospel is your motivation, then you serve God from a full tank. right? You're, you are filled up and you go and serve God. But... When I serve him in order to get his love or to earn his love or to try to keep up, you serve from an empty tank. And it never gets filled, no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you are, no matter how religious you are. You're always on E. Serving from gratitude, from what God has already done for you, free of charge, is energizing and fulfilling. But serving from a place of needing to prove God or earn his love is draining and discouraging. See, the most freeing feeling in the world is knowing that we might fail God a thousand times, yet his love and commitment to us is unchanged. I can fail God a thousand times and his love and commitment to me is unchanged. That motivates us to serve and live and follow Jesus. And so we are motivated, this command from Paul is coming in light of the mercies of God. Therefore, because of this mercy, do this. It's not do this and get these mercies. It's you've received mercy, therefore do this. Indicative, imperative. You are in Christ, you're saved, you're secure. Therefore, do this command. We obey God because we've been accepted by God. So if our motivation following Jesus is the mercy he's shown us, well, what is the aim? 
following Jesus. Verse 1, he continues. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So there, there's a reminder of that indicative. Now here's the command. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. John Piper, a pretty, pretty famous pastor, famously said that missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Meaning that there are millions of people out there who do not worship God. And missions exist to get them to God so that there will be more people worshiping God. See, because our primary purpose in life, our primary aim and purpose in life is worship. We are created as worshipers. Right? Worship is not something we choose to do sometimes and sometimes we choose not to do it. Worship is something we do every single day. The question is only, what are we worshiping? We are created as worshipers and we must worship and we always worship. The question is, what are we worshiping? The Westminster Catechism, the first question is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? What's our main purpose? And the answer to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man, the chief purpose of man is to worship God. But the question is, what does that worship, what does that worship look like? Does it mean that every single day you wake up and open your hymnal and sing before you start your day? What does it mean? The mistake we make when we think about worship is we think that, that it's something that primarily happens in this room. We think that it's something that happens on Sunday morning when we all get together and sing together, right? We think it's something that happens through music, but worship is so much bigger and broader than that. Notice what Paul says first. He says, first, we are to present our bodies, present our bodies. You see, worship is not merely an ethereal, spiritual thing. It is a physical thing. It is real. It is a real thing. It is tangible. Present your body for this worship. Second, he says that this worship of your body is a living sacrifice. Now, he's obviously playing off the, the Jewish ideas and even the pagan ideas of sacrificing something, right? These people would have known what it was like and probably experienced bringing a, a lamb or a goat or a bird or some animal to their priest, whether Jewish or pagan, to be sacrificed on the altar of their God because that's how they worshiped. Bring this animal to be slaughtered and worshiped to whatever God. The worship of these people who are even people reading this letter, their worship was marked by placing an animal on the altar. And what Paul is saying is that worship for us is just like that with one big difference. Our worship is also sacrificing something on the altar. But the sacrifices we bring in worship to God, the sacrifices we bring to the altar, don't die. They live. There are living sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice to the altar, but it keeps on living. She's saying we are not placing a lamb or a goat or something like that on the altar to God anymore. No, we place ourselves. We place our whole lives on the altar, not to die, but to live for him. As a living sacrifice that keeps on going. See, God doesn't want another goat. He doesn't want more blood. Blood has been spilled in full for you. Now he wants you and all of you 
He wants your whole life. And that's how we worship him, by giving him all of ourselves. But you know what the problem is of a living sacrifice? When you put a living sacrifice on the altar, it wants to get off. When you put a goat up on the altar and you try to hold it down, it wants to move. It wants to get down. It wants off. And when we put ourselves on the altar, we want off too after a while. We want off too. And so sometimes instead of putting our whole selves up there, we just put a hand. Or we'd say, oh, I need that hand now. I'll put my foot up there. Y'all, I can't bend that much. I can't get it up there, okay? Or, you know, I need that foot now. God, you can have my elbow. All right, this week is a good week. You can have my whole upper half. Oh, I got to need that back. Now you can have this. And we're picking and choosing which parts of us God gets at what moment. Because living sacrifices can get off the altar. So we play this game. But that is not what the mercy of God demands. You see, the aim of following Jesus, point two, is a whole life lived for God. All of me to him. You know, Paul says, uh, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The Romans and the Greeks in the first century had a really hard time with Christians. They had a hard time understanding Christians because Christians had no priests like they did. They had no temples like they did. There was no temple to, like they had temples to Artemis, right? And all these people, they didn't, we, Christians didn't have a temple. They didn't have priests. They didn't have temple. And they weren't, they weren't sacrificing anything. And so the Romans didn't understand it. It was confusing to them. It was foreign to them. How can you have a religion without priests and without temples and without sacrifices? They didn't understand that as Christians, we are all temples. They didn't understand that as Christians, we are all priests. And they didn't understand that as Christians, we are the sacrifice that we give to God in worship. Every area of our life, every category, everything you do, you do as a priest to God. You do as the temple of God. And as a sacrifice to God. That's what at least we should be doing, right? All of our life should be lived out as the priests in the temples making sacrifices to God. That's who God has made us. This is what we mean in our mission statement, right? When we talk about making Jesus essential in our hearts, lives, and homes. Right? That making Jesus essential means that every category, every facet of our life should come under the reign and control of Jesus where he is the essential aspect of every part of our lives. I shared this quote a minute ago from Abraham Kuyper where he said, there is not a square inch in all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, mine. That's mine. There's not a square inch in the whole cosmos that Jesus doesn't say, that belongs to me. There's not a square inch in your life that you get to have for your own. All right, so let's get practical for a moment. What does this look like? What does it mean that before uh, your kids play their game, what does it mean to worship? Does it mean that before your kids go and play their ball game that you say a team prayer? Does it mean that before you go do your yard work, you, you bless the weeds before you pull them? Does it, mean, does it mean that when you go to work, you play your Christian music in your cubicle really loud so everybody else can hear it? No. What does it mean for all of your life to be worship? 
But it means that your whole life is lived in a way that honors God. Or say another way, your whole life is lived the way God wants you to live it. That every part of you is laid on the altar to God. And if that happens, what would your life look like? If you laid your whole life on the altar to God, what would it look like? Your mouth, your ears, your hands, your feet, the parts we cover up. How might we use all of these things in worship and service to God? Well, are your words building up or tearing down? Are your words used to encourage or, and heal, or are they used to wound? And apply that same logic to everything. What does worship look like when you go to work? Well, wouldn't it mean that when you go to work, you work harder than everyone else? That you don't cut corners? That you're ethical and that you gladly submit to those in authorities over you, even when you could do the job better? What does worship look like in your marriage and in your family? But laying down your life for your spouse, serving, caring, protecting, honoring, cherishing, providing, and nurturing. What does it look like on the ball field? Well, shouldn't it look like having fun? Laughing, competing, being a good sport both in victory and in defeat? And, in, and doesn't it recognize that this fun thing we're having, this fun sport we're participating in is a good gift from God that it's not the end in itself but it is a good gift that we get for a little while what does it look like to worship over a bowl of ice cream whatever you eat or drink do it all to the glory of God what does it look like to worship over ice cream I don't don't know but I do it a lot not as much as Scott Williams but I do it a lot exposed called out What does it look like? It looks like gratitude for a God who is so good to give us the gift of ice cream. And to know that the gift of ice cream isn't the end. It doesn't terminate on itself. It's not the point. But that when I know the giver of the gift, the ice cream spirals up up into greater enjoyment because I worship God through giving me such a great gift. Thank you, Jesus. This is good. Yeah, if y'all can't amen on that, I, I don't know. I know. Sometimes worship looks like anger, right? Righteous anger. Anger at the things Jesus is angry at. Injustice and evil and wrongdoing. When the innocent are hurt, when people are used and abused. Anger at those things is worship because we are doing what Jesus wants us to do. Here's, here's what I'm trying to get across. Sometimes in our life, we think that there are sacred things Spiritual things and secular things, right? There are sacred things and secular things. That Christian music is sacred, but rock and roll is secular. But that's not true. All truth is God's truth. The world is God's world. We are God's creations. In Genesis 2, what did he command us to do? But to build, to flourish, to subdue, to cultivate the whole earth. That means that everything in the world is either, one, good and should be received and enjoyed as a gift from God and worship him through the enjoyment of that thing, or that it's a distorted thing, meaning the roots of it are good, but it's kind of gone sour and so we can redeem that thing and enjoy it, or that things are so broken that they're beyond redemption and we reject them completely and we don't participate in them. But when we look at this life, like, 
That's how we look at it, right? There are things that are good, that things that can be redeemed, and things that can be rejected, and we enjoy those things to God's glory. So when you live your life, whatever you're doing, whatever you're involved in, here's, here's th- kind of three practical steps to think about how you worship God through the thing. One, you give gratitude to the giver of the gift. You enjoy the thing, but you give gratitude to God as the giver of the gift, knowing it doesn't terminate on itself. Two, you do things in a way that honors God. You enjoy it and participate in things in a way that honors God. And three, you leverage everything for the mission of Jesus. All right, so let me, let me use that kind of as an example. So and let me use football, of course. We're going to use football as an example to apply that, right? So one, we're going to use football. You thank God for the gift of football. Whether you watch it, play it, talk about it, enjoy it, you, whatever you do, you recognize that God is the giver of this good gift that you get to enjoy football because God has given it. But you don't be consumed by it. As if football was ultimate. You enjoy it at the appropriate level, recognizing the giver of the gift. Two, well, you play, you coach, you watch, you talk about it, and you do all of those things in a way that honors God. Right? You Live for God in doing that thing. And so your temper, your words, your attitude, the amount of time you give to that thing, right? How much time you invest in that thing matters. And so if football is taking you away from gathering with the people of God on Sunday morning, it's not honoring to the Lord, all right? If football is taking you away, if, you, if you're so worried about missing the game at 1 o'clock and you don't come or you're playing and you don't come, that's not, that's not worship. You're not worshiping God playing football because you've missed gathering with the people of God. So that's not honoring to him, right? So whatever you're doing, you've got to do it in a way that's bringing honor to him. And then three, that you leverage football for the mission of Jesus. That means you talk to your teammates about Jesus. That means you invite people over to watch the game with you so that eventually you can talk to them about Jesus. If you approach a thing with gratitude to God and honor God in your actions in doing it and leverage in it for the kingdom, then you'll be worshiping God through that thing. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, worship, while is sacrificing your life, should actually be enjoyable. John Piper famously said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And God has given us this whole world to cultivate and enjoy. And so enjoy life and glorify God, worship God as you do it. So our motivation in following Jesus is mercy. The aim of following Jesus is a whole life worshiping him. Third, what is the means by which we do this? What is the means by which we accomplish this? What is the means by which we faithfully follow Jesus and give our lives and worship to him? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Every decision we make, everything we take in, everything in our lives leads to a fork in the road, leading us to either, one, become more like Jesus, or two, become more like the world. We're either transformed into the image of Jesus or conformed into the image of the world. This word transformed comes from the Greek word uh, metamorpho, which you can tell we got our English word metamorphosis from that, right? Which is the word we use to describe a caterpillar who goes into a cocoon. 
When a caterpillar goes into cocoon, they go in there and these uh, enzymes are released and they become this butterfly. What, what doesn't happen is the caterpillar doesn't go in there and start reading books on how to become a butterfly. The caterpillar doesn't go in there and start working out, right, and try to grow some wings. He goes in there and things are, are these enzymes are released and the, and the caterpillar dissolves into mush and is transformed literally from the inside out to become this butterfly, is reforged. And the same thing is happening to Christians. That the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, is so reordering our lives that we are literally being transformed from the inside out into a new creation. But how does this happen? The text says the way you're transformed is through the renewal of your mind. Renewing your mind. Point three, the means of following Jesus is a renewed mind. Think about this. Have you ever met a well-meaning Christian who was trying to follow Jesus, but was acting in a way that it was bizarre or seeming counter to Christianity. The easy example is to think about preachers a couple hundred years ago using the Bible to tell southern landowners that owning slaves was good and godly and biblical. Or Christian sports coaches who blow up and lose their mind and their temper on the refs during the Bengals game, but it was almost justified, I'm just saying. Or Christians who miss the vital gathering of God's people on Sunday morning because they had other plans. Or Christians marked by divisions over political issues. Or Christians who, some, who sometimes feel the need to justify and defend their political people when they say stupid things, even though they would disagree with those things. There's a simple answer for this. Why do we act contrary to following Jesus? The reason we make poor choices in all of life is because sometimes we are more influenced by the words of the world than the words of God. It is through the renewal of the mind that we're going to be transformed. But if you are not engaging your mind on the things of God, how could you ever expect to be transformed? If you spend six days a week taking in Fox News or CNN, or if you take six days a week listening to sports radio, or if you take six days a week reading romance novels, if you take six days a week just living and soaking up the culture from whatever avenue you take it in, and you take one hour of one week to focus your mind on the things of God, there is no wonder you look more like the world than you look like Jesus. How could it have been any other way? Pretty much every area in our life, every misstep, every wrong action, every wrong thought can be traced back to intaking into your mind some information that you did not first filter through the lens of Scripture. And because of that, you receive that information as good and right when you should have rejected it as foolish and ungodly. So here's the question. In this blank, if you're filling this out, this, uh, there's not a slide for this blank. You've got to fill in this blank. Who or what is primarily discipling you? A disciple is somebody who becomes like their teacher. Who are you becoming like because you are listening and following them? Fill in that blank. Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Is it your spouse? Is it an anchor on Fox News? Is it an anchor on CNN? Is it an anchor on ESPN? Is it somebody in some romance novel you're really into? Like, what is it? Who is it that you are becoming like because you're more influenced by them than Jesus? You see, the information you take in is not neutral. There is no such thing as unbiased 
And there are certainly the things you are taking in are most likely not very Christian. That doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to those things. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take them in. It should mean that you take them in and you test everything. That's what verse 2 says. You test everything. You weigh it against. You sift it through the lens of this book that we claim to be inerrant and infallible and perfect. Right? And so we weigh everything against this. If you don't, you're going to look like the world. You're going to look like the culture and not like Jesus. But if you want to follow Jesus, if you want your life to be a living sacrifice to him because of his mercy has so changed you, then it always is going to start with your mind. It starts with renewing your mind every single day. And the only way you can renew your mind is by engaging your mind. That means reading this book. Reading the scriptures, that means reading good Christian books. That means listening to good Christian sermons. That means having good conversations with others about the things of God. There's lots of avenues to engage your mind on the things of God, but you've got to engage it. You've got to think. You've got to renew it. It means challenging yourself to think on the things of God, to apply the things of God to all of your life. It means thinking hard and challenging yourself. It means sometimes and oftentimes that you're going to realize you were wrong about something and you've got to change how you saw that or thought about that. It may mean you have to change your actions on something because now your mind's been renewed and you realize you were doing it wrong. Because when you apply the word of God to your life, you will discover that you are in error in some places. Every one of us are. And you need to be transformed into the image of Jesus and not conform to the world. And you're only going to discover that through the engaging and renewal of your mind. And it's okay and it is good. And that, it, that it's a fight that we're all going through. Examining what we think. Examining our positions, our thoughts. Holding them up to scripture. Seeing if we are consistent. And always changing and always becoming more like Jesus. You have to be engaging your mind. You have to be intaking. If, if this, more, this 30 minutes, if you're lucky, 30 minutes, uh, sermon is all you're taking in and engaging your mind, you're going to look more like something else. I'm, I know I'm really good at this, but I'm not that good. I'm just kidding. I thought that would be funnier. Y'all sleeping on me. See, there is a fork in the road every day of your life. And you're becoming either more like heaven or more like hell, more like Jesus or more like the world. And if you're not engaging your mind, you're filling your mind with things that are of this world. And you are not strong enough, smart enough, or lucky enough to combat those things. But God has given you the tools to transform you into the image of God. But you've got to use the tools. He's giving you this, his word. He's giving you this community. He's given us the broader community. Of Christianity. But you've got to use them. And so how do you give your whole life to God? Well, it starts by giving him your mind. Loving him with your mind. Change starts with the mind. It works its way down into the heart and then it changes your hands. It changes your actions. Changing your actions. You want to change, it always is going to start with your mind. You want to change your heart, it's always going to start with your mind. All change starts with the mind through the renewal of your mind on the things of God. And what you're going to find out as you do this is that right thinking doesn't just lead to knowing the right things. Right thinking leads you to valuing the right things and disvaluing valuing the wrong things. And when you value the right things, 
everything changes. When you value the right things, you know what decisions to make. When you value the right things, you realize that you've been skipping church for the ball game, and you realize you valued the wrong thing. When you, when you renew your mind and you see what's valuable, you realize, oh, I've been doing this, I've been doing that, and it's wrong because I valued something more than this. Right thinking leads to right valuing, and it changes our hearts and our actions. So our motivation in following Jesus is mercy. The aim of following Jesus is a whole life given in worship, and the means of which we do this is through the renewal of our minds. But the result of following Jesus is becoming like Jesus. Verse 2 ends by saying, By testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good. Sometimes we think this means that when we have a big decision to make, like where we're going to school or where we're going to get married, if I'm going to take that job or take that promotion, that we have to discover God's will, meaning we've got to get the okay from God. Like we want to do it, and we just got to get God's approval before we do it. But that's not what this means. You see, when you are giving your whole life in worship to God and you are renewing your mind and the things of God, the result of that is you will be positioning yourself within the will of God. Discovering the will of God is less about getting the okay from God to go ahead with your plans, and it's more about aligning and adjusting your will and plans with God's will and plans. You say, oh, God, you're over here. That's where I'm going to go be. When we, in our own thoughts, in our own ways, and by our own reasoning, make plans, we will find ourselves looking for God's confirmation of those plans. But when we are living for God with our whole lives and renewing our minds, we will be discovering what his will is and simply stepping into it. When you are in the will of God, it is because you're becoming more like Jesus is the goal. The goal for all of us as we live and follow Jesus is to become like him. That is literally what a disciple is, someone who learns from their teacher and does and thinks and acts and copies him in every way. And we are to be disciples of Jesus, which means we are like him, but too often we are disciples of something else. Proverbs is right when it says, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. Because whoever we listen to and talk with and are around, whoever we value, we will become like that person. That's why every time I go to North Carolina and come home, my wife complains because I start talking like a redneck. We can't help but conform to what and who we are around and what we take in. And when I go there, as Brother Sproul would say, my heart language just comes out. So you need to surround yourself with people and things that make much of Jesus. You need to read things that make much of Jesus. And you need to listen and take in things that make much of Jesus so that you will know when you hear something contrary to reject it or redeem it. That's how we become like him. So church, let's worship with our words as we sing and with our lives, with everything we do and everywhere we go because our God deserves all we have to give him and more. And so by his mercy, we give our lives in service to him. And that's worship. Not just singing, not just hands in the air, but a whole life lived for God. Pray. Father, this morning, we gather together as the people of God, and we, we sing these things, these truths. Would you help make the things we sing true in our lives? 
Would you help make the things we hear about and teach on and listen to and sing true in our lives? Would you help make us more like Jesus and disciples of Jesus and no longer disciples of Fox News and CNN and sports radio? Father, help us be disciples in the image of Jesus and not in the image of the world. Help us to renew our minds on the things of God. And so, Father, would you make our church into greater and greater disciples? But, Father, for the person in this room who isn't a disciple of Jesus because they've never given their life to him, for the person in this room who doesn't follow Jesus because they've never bowed their knees and said, Jesus, be my king, forgive me of my sins, for the person that can't worship because they're not a part of your family, would you give them the courage this morning to come and talk with me? They might join the family of God, find some new brothers and sisters, and their life be made new so that they can enjoy life to the fullest. See, God, we can, we can enjoy a bowl of ice cream knowing it's not the end, but there's something greater it points to, whereas there may be some in this room who, when they eat a bowl of ice cream, it is the end in itself, and there's nothing beyond it or past it. It's just ice cream. God, would you show us this morning? For those followers of Jesus in this room, that all things are meant for our enjoyment, all good things are meant for our enjoyment, and that we must worship you through them. But for those not in this room, would you show them that everything in this world is worthless without Jesus, that is not fun and terminates on itself without Jesus, but that Jesus makes everything richer and better. If you don't know Jesus this morning, come up here and talk with me as we sing this song, and let me show you how you can follow him. If you're here this morning and you just need to pray about anything in your life going on, I want to be here for you. I want to pray with you. Hug your neck. You come up here as we sing. And if you just need to stand there and sing and pay attention to the words and say, Jesus, help me to live out the things I sing, do that. God, give us a strength to follow you in every way. Renew our minds. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, stand together.